Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday in detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about uh, a number of updates on geopolitics around the world. We're going to be talking about a positive development in Sudan, and then we're going to speculate on how the various crises across Africa, and I mean the whole continent, how that might make the continent ripe for the new scramble. All that and more, coming up. switch things up this episode and instead we're going to jump to the meat because it's a bit smaller uh, than this time around and we'll do the rapid fire the not so rapid fire news afterwards so we'll just uh, do that and jump right to Sudan because as I mentioned there's been positive developments in Sudan and we've been following the story we've been talking about it a lot we talked about the instability breaking out in Sudan. We talked about how they resolved it back when they had a crisis with their presidency. And then we started talking about Sudan again when the military took over the government uh, again. <laughs> but this time, we now have positive developments for Sudan. Uh, we're not talking about instability this time, although there is still a good bit of that to go around because... Uh, the, the positive development is because last week a declaration was signed between General Al-Burhan, uh, that's the leader of the military and the leader of the coup, and Abdallah Hamdok, that is the former prime minister of the country. The declaration uh, uh, where they signed together, it has installed Hamdok as Sudan's prime minister, so it reinstalled him. Uh, this declaration also promised broad political participation. So that means a large number of parties and political interests will be allowed to be represented in the government. So that sounds like a good thing. We'll see if they follow through on that. Um, it also promised investigations into all the killings that occurred during the unrest that broke out immediately following the coup. So that sounds like a concession to the people um, that obviously were upset about the coup and rioted and they're promising investigations into the deaths that happened while people were rioting so that's an obvious concession to your obvious opposition so there's that and then it promised the establishment of a proper judiciary they promised courts uh they promised a proper legislative council as well so Basically, they're promising to devolve the power away from the military uh, towards a more three-branch style system of governance with the parliament uh, and the judiciary and there's the president as well. So, sounds good. Um, sounds very, very good. Definitely the the best news coming out of Sudan over the past year so very good for Sudan uh, and lastly the declaration also pledged that it would build a unified national army so really this seems like a large attempt at bridging divides within the country uh, especially divides that were worsened by the military's takeover of power so the military appears to be handling this very very sensitively uh, as they should it's a very sensitive matter, and so far, they're doing it right. They've set this up uh, very quickly, because I talked about before, when we talked about Myanmar, when they had their coup and the military took over, I said they got to do it right, and otherwise, they're going to do permanent damage to the country. Um, what I didn't say, though, was that, well, actually, not, not from Myanmar, but I did say this uh, during the last few episodes about Sudan, where I said that the longer this goes on, the more chances there are for something to go wrong. I didn't say that for Myanmar, but I said that for Sudan. 
And it appears that the military understood that as well, and they have acted very swiftly in getting this done. Because uh, they were promising elections in the summer of next year. That's a long time away. That's a long time for things to go wrong. But they've taken immediate action now, and they're sort of laying down the groundwork for where the country's going to go uh, almost immediately after the coup. So that's a good thing, especially when they're promising to divulge power from themselves back to a civilian government. That is also good. So, good things across the board for Sudan, and we can only hope for the best as they move forward. I gotta say, it's definitely not just good news for Sudan, but good news for the region in general, because we talked a lot about instability, and instability breeding more instability, but uh, looks like Sudan may just break the mold of their neighbors, where you have Ethiopia in a civil war, and Ethiopia is building a dam that's causing, that's going to cause great instability in Egypt when the Nile River starts drying up. So, Sudan looks like it's positioned to be a beacon of stability in a neighborhood that is inherently unstable uh, due to internecine conflicts and feuds that no one seems to want to talk out. Well, I guess the Ethiopian government is willing to talk to the rebel, the Tigray rebels now, now that they're losing, but the Tigray wants nothing to do with them anymore. They want victory. So we'll see if that backfires on them. Um, but speaking of Tigray, I have here in my notes, uh, there it is, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, he advocated for a ceasefire in Ethiopia during his visit to Kenya. Um, so, uh, he's doing something. He's not, uh, <laughs> he's, he's doing something. He's apparently on a tour of Africa right now, so... We'll see what he does, uh, if he does much of anything. Not quite sure what they're going to accomplish, well, what Blinken's going to accomplish in Africa, uh, Kenya in particular. Maybe he's trying to lay the groundwork for a trade deal? I, I don't know. Uh, as far as I know, U.S. interests don't exactly lie in Africa. Uh, a lot of other countries do, but for the U.S. in particular, we sort of we're sort of disconnected from Africa in terms of the interest of our nation, even in terms of trade. So I, I don't know. Maybe, uh, you know. More likely, it's probably just because China has large influence in Africa. And so there's this push that has been made by others who have subscribed to the Cold War 2.0. Uh, not the one that I lay out, but the U.S.-China Cold War 2.0. Those who subscribe to that are in this notion, this idea, that we have to be involved in Africa and we have to start building infrastructure projects in Africa and doing all these things there uh, for the sole reason that China is there and they're doing it already. So because China, we have to be there as well. Uh, it makes less sense in reality than it does when I, the way I put it to you. Um, and that's not just the isolationist in me. There's just not much reason for the United States to be involved in Africa. I mean, and I'll stress this again. There's lots of reasons for other countries to be involved there. Turkey has an ally in Libya, and they are going to work together to basically assert control of the Eastern Med. That's their plan. Turkey's building up their navy, and we'll probably see them assert that, at that plan at some point in the future. The French uh, used to have colonies in Africa, and they are militarily involved in the Sahel on behalf of a lot of countries that used to be their colonies and they clearly have interests there they don't want to continue losing influence um, they want to keep their influence there even if uh, even if if they aren't quite the colonial overlord anymore it still helps to have that influence there it still helps to be able to have troops be able to go through those territories because that's control it's not direct control it's not the same but it is control it is a sphere of influence that goes beyond your home
Uh, France is in a rough neighborhood, or traditionally it's been rough. Right now it's pretty docile. But the French are not going to expand their sphere of influence in Europe. Uh, there's just too many other imperial centers or would-be imperial centers to compete with. Uh, you know, just looking off the off their neighbors, their immediate neighbors, There's there was the Dutch, there was the Belgians, there was the British, the Spanish, the Portuguese, and the Germans. Uh, they're not expanding anything in Europe, although Macron is trying for a European integrationism. Uh, European integrationism, but I do not believe that's going to pan out. I know I keep saying it, but I really don't. Uh, again, just going off that list I gave you of would-be and potential imperial centers, There, there's too much competition. And that's not even to bring up Germany, who is also on board with integration, but they are the dominant power in the EU. Not the dominant power in Europe, that's Russia, but they are the dominant power in the EU. France uh, cannot quite topple them or out-influence them in Europe, but the Germans can topple and out-influence the French in Europe, and they routinely do so through the might of their economy. And not to mention the Germans have the largest population in Europe outside of Russia itself. So France is fighting a losing battle trying to go after the integration route throughout Europe when there's a Germany right there who also wants integration, but you're going to compete with a technically superior foe, foe, even though they're technically on the same side, but the French cannot topple Germany as Germany is right now. They just can't do it. So this integration project will either succeed and fall into Germany's hands, or it will fail and France will have to go its own way. I believe countries, not just France, are going to have to go their own way on this one uh, for various secessionist movements throughout Europe, the EU itself, as well as really just divides in Europe that grow every time there's a new crisis because the interests of the various European states are so vastly different from one another on certain issues that they just the whole solidarity thing falls apart the second the issue actually has meaning to the countries involved if it's something far away oh yes solidarity yes but when you're talking about people at the border oh that that, that now there's a split because if they're coming from the middle east and they're going through spain italy or greece and you defend your borders you're evil but if those same people go up through Russia and come through Belarus to Poland, oh, well, now you need to build a wall. We're going to send troops to help you defend your country from this invasion and this hybrid warfare. And you're a hero now. For your, You're the hero of the EU for stopping those, those weapons of Russia. So on issues that actually mean something, to the Europeans, they're sharply divided in their responses to them. And technically, the EU position is still open borders. But the EU position is also anti-Russia. Anti-Russia is not in Hungary's playbook, uh, although it may be in Poland's. Uh, France also wants rapprochement with Russia. So, even on the issue of Russia, there's division. On the issue of immigration, there's division. I do not see European integration working, uh, if at all. So I see countries going their own way. France, when it has to go its own way, they're going to look straight towards their former colonies. So they have reason to be involved in Africa. The British are already going their own way. Kanzuk is somewhere out there in the ether. Uh, every now and then people talk about it. And then it fades away again. But it's there. And technically the British are the least in favor of it. And least in favor of it being in the mid-60s range of approval. So there's still a supermajority in Britain. The least favorable to Kanzuk. Not to mention everyone else. 
Jaguar is somewhere around the 70% approval range, Kanzuk is probably going to happen at some point in the future. The British are already going their own way. They're already interfacing, re-interfacing with their former dominions, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And when I was thinking about it, uh, what the geopolitical landscape would look like with Kanzuk, uh, I noticed uh, a very peculiar problem that would pop up almost immediately for the new third British Empire. And that is that while Canada and Britain are right across the pond from each other, and while Australia and New Zealand are an even shorter swim away from each other, they're very far away. Uh, sure, there's the Pacific Ocean, and the only thing that's going to stop Canada from reaching Australia and New Zealand is going to be the United States, but that's a very long way. It does t center the empire around Canada more than it does Britain, geographically, but Britain is, let's be real, they're the demographic heartland and the economic heartland of this entity, and the others are going to have, they're going to be subservient just by the force of demographics and economy. They're going to be subservient to the British Isles. Their needs are going to ultimately be secondary to the British Isles, and Britain is probably going to be the political center of it all anyway. But, even if we assume that Canada becomes the heartland of this new union, they are presented with a problem. And that is the distance between Canada and Britain and Australia and New Zealand. So they're sort of split in half. But that presents them with ways, uh, well, reasons, I should say, to expand where would they expand? Well, the British still have Gibraltar. That's uh, a very, very tiny piece of land uh, south of Spain, north of Morocco, right there where the Atlantic meets the Mediterranean. The British own a piece of land right there. They control the Gibraltar Straits. If I'm not mistaken, and I am not, but they own that, so they can control the entryway into the Mediterranean from the Atlantic. But that's not good enough to get you from Britain and Canada to New Zealand. Um, and for Canada, we're talking about the East Coast, because it's cheaper to travel by sea. So if you're on the eastern seaboard of Canada, you're not going to be going straight to the Pacific. You have to go through the Atlantic, through the Caribbean Sea, then through the Panama Canal, then you're in the Pacific... And if you're Britain, you have to go to the Atlantic regardless of which way you go. But they have that, the Gibraltar Straits. So looking at former British territories, we see an option, well, I see an option, for potential reintegration for the purposes of keeping shipping within the empire. Number one would be Egypt for the Suez Canal. I don't know if they're going to be able to get that one this time. Uh, Egypt is a pretty heavily armed nation in a pretty hostile neighborhood. Egypt would have to be significantly weakened, and no other predatorial power will have stepped in to enable the British to step in themselves and occupy that territory, even if it's just the strip of land on either side of the Suez Canal. I don't see them getting Egypt. Although it would be very, very, very useful to them to control the Suez Straits. But there's another option. It's the longer way around Africa, but it worked for the British for quite a while. Um, and that's South Africa. The reintegration of South Africa would partially solve the distance issue... Uh, and it would give the British a bypass to the Suez Canal uh, because they could use the ports in South Africa as a midway station between the Atlantic hubs of eastern Canada and the British Isles and the Oceanic hubs of Australia and New Zealand. They could go straight uh, to South Africa. And that when you look at it on a map, 
it looks very uh, appealing, to say the least. And it's probably the safer option, if if there ever was a safe option for imperial reintegration. Egypt is in a very hostile neighborhood. You need, you basically have to already be snowballing as an empire to t snag that one. Uh, even Turkey would need to be snowballing to get that one. But with South Africa, you already have the history of ownership over this territory. You have whites in South Africa who are feeling increasingly oppressed by the blacks who have so really taken power back in the region and are pretty upset over what happened in the past. So you have a base that you can use to step in. Now, whether or not the British would use that base is another thing, because we're, I'm just going off the assumption that they would go after South Africa anyway. Uh, but if they choose to go down the path of South Africa to solve the distance issue between the Canadians, the, the C and the UK part of the Kanzuk and unite them with the A and the Z, South Africa is an excellent option. Now, what that would make of the Kanzuk acronym, I don't even want to speculate. Kanzuksa. Uh, I imagine something more, slightly more creative will probably... Uh, Sa Kanzuk? Uh, S-A? They'll, they'll figure something out. Either that or they'll just default to calling it the Third British Empire themselves. But, um... Yes, uh, that, that's an observation I made with regards to the British Empire. But back to way, way back to the point of countries having interests in Africa uh, outside the U.S., who really doesn't. The British and the French are key examples of countries that may have, that do have, actually, interests in Africa. Uh, in the case of Britain, they will. And in the case of, say, Spain... There's a lot of pipelines that come from Algeria and Morocco into Spain. Um, but if Algeria and Morocco ended up fighting a war, which they've broken off all diplomatic relations, so that's a distinct possibility right these days, Spain has interests in North Africa. Portugal is also a beneficiary of those same pipelines. They have interests in Africa as well. Italy gets a lot of pipelines coming through the Mediterranean. They have interests in Africa. Turkey has an ally in Libya. The Libyan government, not Hafdar, they have interests in Africa. China is a major, major influencer in Africa, and that's sort of how we got to the topic in the first place. They have massive influence in Africa, and therefore they have massive interests in Africa. They have an aging demography but if they can interface with Africa directly and interface with them and strong enough to where they can penetrate the continent and get to the markets and the resources of it, they can live out their demographic decline until they can find a way to stabilize it. Or if they just have to wait for it to stabilize naturally, Africa can be their crutch. If they can get to it, that'll require uh, a new order in East Asia centered around China, and then they can do that. But Africa can be their crutch, and I believe that they will in time come to realize this. Uh, for now, I think it's just for the purpose of expanding their trade influence in the continent to, well, employ to continue their full employment and to continue getting concessions. Uh, out of these countries to expand their geopolitical footprint. China wants to be a great power. Uh, I don't know if they want to be the world power, but they definitely want to be a great power. That much is evidence. Now, when the demographic decline hits, they will look at Africa and all its potential, and they're probably going to double down on it. China has interest in Africa. So, a lot of other countries have interest in Africa, and those are just the interests that I can point out to you off the top of my head. And all of them, just off the top of my head, make sense for countries to want and even need to be involved here. The United States is a peculiar instance. 
because it really doesn't. But people over here are uh, afraid of China. They're they're, they're fear mongering about China and everything that China does. So that justifies doing things we really don't need to do on their part, and with little questioning from those who aren't me, I guess. But um, yeah, very interesting how that goes. The countries that have in interest in Africa are relatively passive minus China that is and China and France and in terms of the United States they're the, getting more dogged about needing interests in Africa except we have no interest in Africa but we have to counter China somehow uh, I don't think that's necessary but people do and that seems to be the route we're going and we'll see how that pans out and I guess I'll close out this beginning segment of the podcast by uh, talking about some of the countries that have the most influence. And by talking about, I mean, I'm going to list off the countries in order of how much influence I believe they have. Uh, so the sort of top five, I would go the United, the, would it be the United States? Or would it be China? Uh, I think it's United States because we have a massive military presence across the entire continent. So it's basically France, uh, the military route across the entire continent so that by on its own puts us in number one in terms of the presence we have in africa immediately after united states is china they're going the more economic route in trade and infrastructure and then there's france they uh are involved in a smaller area than china and are militarily involved so that sort of beefs up the strength of their influence in the regions that they are in but the regions they are in are smaller than the regions that china is involved in after france i believe there comes turkey a major contender they are actively backing the government forces in libya's civil war a civil war that is coming to a close or at least it appears that way the election is in december we'll see how things go turkey is a major player there and we'll see how things pan out for them. Uh, especially if there's a peace deal. We'll see if they try to sabotage it. But after Turkey, who would be next? I guess it would probably be Spain. Because they, yeah, I guess Spain. They do, They have a strip of land that is actually on the continent of Africa. So, technically speaking, they have... Um, more int they have more interests and that a, a greater presence just courtesy of their own territory than anyone else that would come after them. So that's the top five on the presence in Africa list. And we'll be talking about Africa more later on in the episode. So stay tuned. All right, we're back, and now we're going to get into the rapid-fire news. We changed it up this episode. So now I'm going to talk about some of the things I've come across while gathering up the news for this episode. Uh, we have anti-vaccine mandate protests continuing to hit the streets of France, Germany, America, Denmark, uh, and many more countries. It doesn't seem to be ending. People really want an end to the lockdowns. And people really don't want to be mandated to take the vaccine. And the vaccine efficacy and effectiveness declining over time, as has been stated by the CDC and various other doctors, uh, probably isn't helping the case of the vaccine. It, uh, probably, I mean, it really isn't helping the case of the vaccine, especially among the people who did want to take the vaccine. Um... But it's, it seems to be that people are resisting massively. And I imagine that if they're still out on the streets in the November, when it's getting cold out, I don't see this going away. At least until the threat of the mandate goes away. Um, I guess on while we're talking about mandates, the OSHA vaccine mandate in the U.S., which was brought about by Joe Biden has basically been torn apart by the Supreme Court and 
there's other lawsuits going on right now where people are suing the federal government for even trying. So we'll see where things go. I think things are going, in my personal opinion, in the right direction. Freedom, you know, you shouldn't force people to do things. Uh, sure, it's a vaccine, um, but from what we're learning, it takes away your body's ability to make antibodies. But if it's impairing your body's ability to make antibodies, then that makes it the opposite of a vaccine. The vaccine's supposed to give you immunity, not take away your ability to get immunity. It's very strange how this has ended up working out. Very, very strange. I'll, I'll just say that. I never expected to come across uh, an injection that takes away your ability to gain immunity because it, it's targeting antibodies and your ability to produce them. I don't know what is going on. Uh, it's Well, I know what's going on. Uh, I just have a sh hard time believing that we are in this place, uh, but we are, and it's a very strange one. Uh, well, I'll just continue to observe from uh, the comfort of my chair. Yes, and I'll tell you what I find as we journey through this chaotic period in human history, and maybe someone will write a book on it. Will it be me? Probably, but it'll, uh, I'll probably miss all the hype, and it'll, it'll come out in 2050, the pandemic, by Wade. <laughs> all, all three of you will read that. But hey, we, we're going to move on to Israel, because the Israel-Palestine feud, it, it continues with the latest shootings by Hamas on multiple Jews in Jerusalem's old city. Uh, they killed one and wounded three, and this was most likely in retaliation to a stabbing that happened before, um, well, a stabbing that probably came in retaliation to a shooting on the behalf of the, it's a long cycle of violence that has gotten, uh, worse over the past few months, and continues to solidify what I said about it strangling Israel's room to maneuver, on anything that isn't Palestine, um, because it's really consuming all their attention. I, I haven't seen the Israelis talk or do anything uh, that isn't related to Palestine in the past couple months. It's eaten up all their attention, and, and with them distracted, it opens the door to other countries to make moves. Now, we'll see what moves are made, and more more than likely, the end of the Syrian civil war is going to happen while Israel's distracted. And that means the solidification of the Iranian sphere of influence, as the, or as I like to call them, the Persia Pact. But the feud continues, and it will probably continue to continue. And every now and then I'll probably bring it up again. But while we're talking about Israel, they are currently set to sign a deal with Jordan to build a massive solar energy plant in Jordan that will produce energy for both countries. So, uh, there's that. <laughs> there's that. Um, but, that's uh, like one thing. It is a pretty big thing. So, at the very least, they're getting some things accomplished that aren't related to Palestine. But, look at the nature of this. It is a concession to their neighbor, really, where they're like, we're going to build this for you, and in exchange, just let us have some of the energy. That's not exactly, um, not exactly playing up the strengths of your country as much as it is a, well, as much as it is a concession to keep your neighbors from pouncing on you, because I'm... Jordan has direct access to the West Bank because Jordan is the country on the East Bank of that body of water. So if Jordan is open for anti-Israeli forces to move through and operate in, that will retard Israeli efforts to get a control over the situation in Palestine. Um, 
So I see this as a very, very good move to sort of woo Jordan onto your side, although it may be uh, one woo too late, as I, I believe that they are still in the Persia Pact, as far all things considered. However, they might not be able to completely win over Jordan, but they can secure energy for, get this, all of those new settlements that they're building in Palestine. Hmm. I wonder how they got to this energy deal. I wonder why they happened to approve all those new settlements uh, at the time, right before they finished up this deal with solar energy. Oh, it's, it's almost as if... It's almost as if they're gonna make sure that they benefit from this, even if it's in the short term. But, like it or not, at least you can see why the Israelis are doing what they're doing. They're trying to settle the issue with Palestine, and it appears that they're going for the... If we settle the land and force them off of it, they can't contest the rights to the land with us. If they're living in a different country then they can't say that this is their land, we can say this is our land, none of you live on it. Um, it seems seems like that's the route they're going for, and they're accelerating that route, because the problem is getting increasingly worse for them, and draws increasingly more attention. There's a movement in the United States, uh, Boycott, Divest, and Sanction, uh, BDS, from people more on the left, I tacitly support it uh, in the way, in the means that I don't think our money should be going to Israel anyway, although I don't like sanctions just off principle. If you don't like a country, just leave them alone. Don't try to ruin their life. So I'm not on board with the sanctions, and I don't see it as necessary for the government to boycott Israel, but if people decide to boycott Israel, then let them boycott Israel. So I'm, I'm tacitly in favor of it, and that's that is the isolationist in me coming out. Uh, so it, as a person who is technically right wing, that puts me in a very strange position where I'm, I'm on the left on this issue. But uh, well, whatever, it's not like right and left has to be a hard divide in the country, although it seems like it is. But uh, just further proof that the country isn't quite as divided. As people like to believe. But that's Israel. Um, getting energy at the same time they're building new settlements in Palestine. Uh, we'll see where this goes. It'll probably ultimately end up in the, lo the longest ethnic cleaning ever seen in Middle Eastern history. Where the Palestinians are gradually forced off the land. Um, and they'll probably form really large minorities in neighboring countries. Uh, with a vendetta, and they'll have a very strong vendetta, and it'll ultimately end up probably like the situation between Austria-Hungary and Serbia. That's where I see this ultimately ending up, should Israel be successful in forcing large swaths of the Palestinian people off the land and into other countries, and while they might not have their own state, their own country outside of Israel, They'll be very, very large minorities. They are they blend into the population courtesy of their religion, and they can be used as weapons against Israel, uh, for the nothing less uh, than the Cassus Belli, uh, a case for war, if you want to call it that. Countries in the future, and this is a pretty big speculation because I don't know how long this let's call it what it is, ethnic cleansing is going to take. But as it is in the ending stages, we could see the Palestinian minorities in neighboring countries be used as a justification for war on Israel because the countries around Israel maybe want to knock Israel down a peg or maybe they want to form a coalition against Israel or maybe they just want to annex the land because there's some new shiny resource in Israel, or an old resource that has new purpose in the next industrial revolution. I don't know how things will shake down, but they can very easily be used, and they being the Palestinian people, they can very easily be used as a tool for other means. And that's probably, as sad as that is, it's probably the route that's 
seems to be most likely right now. And it'll probably be the route that destroys Israel. Because if they're successful in forcing them off the land, then Israel will remain a vast majority Jewish country. And they won't have to worry about those demographic issues. So all the issues will come from the outside. And Israel is in a very dangerous and very hostile neighborhood, even if it seems a, a bit more mundane right now. Iran is on the rise, and Turkey probably won't be far behind. So that's Israel. Uh, but we're going to move on from Israel. Talk about Bulgaria. They have a, Their president has won re-election, so good for him. Meanwhile, Chile is gearing up for another round of their own elections, um, and we'll see what the result happens to be. In back in Africa, there's three who have been wounded by, not by, three have been wounded in Burkina Faso by French troops while they were protesting France's presence in the country. So you have opposition to the French presence in the former colonial territory, but notice. This opposition is coming from protesters, not the government. Hmm, not the government. And so far, there hasn't exactly been a very strong response from the government in response to these shootings by the French troops on these protesters. I think that this is a pretty good example of influence in a country where the French troops have gotten away with this with words and a slap on the wrist. The French presence has not been expelled. So either the French have the the might to just impose themselves on this former colonial territory, Burkina Faso, or the government is complicit in keeping them there, even if it happens to be unfortunate for some of the people. And I think it's the second option. France may be able to move troops through the country. They might be able to defeat Burkina Faso if they waged like a complete and total war against them. But I think it's the latter. One, because of the weak response the government has given in response to these shootings. And two, Burkina Faso is at war with the militants, the Islamic militants that are ravaging the Sahel. They're at war and the French are effectively fighting that war for them. The French have better military equipment. The French have better military in general. The French have better logistics. They can go into the desert and apparently take the fight to these militants. I don't know if Burkina Faso was able to do that in the same capacity. And I believe the government of the country also feels the same. Which is why they allowed the French to run this war effort for them. Even when it cost the lives of their own citizens. This is the power of influence. Uh, this is a pretty good example of the power of influence from the military perspective. Uh, in terms of e economic influence, infrastructure projects are key. Infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure for economic influence. And that's what we see with China. But with France, it's more military. And so this is a really good example of the other side of the dichotomy of influence between Bread and butter. Uh, well, guns and butter, I'm sorry. <laughs> Bread and butter. This is what influence looks like when you have the guns. Infrastructure is what it looks like when you have the butter. So, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, France, while we're still talking about France, they have deployed troops to Guadalupe uh, to quell riots that have broken out against COVID lockdown measures. So there's even more unrest around the world and well, I said it I'm in to go. That's all around the world and I don't think it's going to go away uh, until the measures go away. Meanwhile in Yemen, the Houthi offensive is grinds on, the Saudi-backed coalition is fighting back and the casualties mainly on the Houthi side are mounting because the the Saudi coalition has drones. Uh, although the Houthis did have drones of their own but from some mother, uh, some of the reports, a lot of their drones got shot down. Don't know if that's all the drones they have. Probably not. But so far, the Saudi coalition has control over the skies. 
and they're taking as much advantage over that as they can, even if they're still losing, gradually. Meanwhile, millions face a... They face harsh food prospects in Somalia as a drought has rocked the country. Across the Atlantic, Brazil and Qatar have signed, interestingly enough, a military cooperation agreement. Um, very interesting thing, and I'll try to keep my eyes on this development. I say I'm going to keep my eyes on a lot of things, and I do my best, but we'll see where this goes. We'll definitely see where this goes, and is further proof that Qatar is the diplomatic capital of the Middle East. They make deals, and they make them well. So there's that. Meanwhile, back in Europe, Belarus has shut down an oil pipeline to Europe, and this is likely in retaliation to all the flack and hate <laughs> that they've gotten over the the issue of migrants at the border between them and Poland, which is itself just a degeneration of the dispute that happened between Belarus and its neighbors over its 2020 election. So there's just been a downward spiral that we have luckily been enough been able to witness as I have kept a spotlight on this continuing drama uh, all the way up to this point. So, yeah, it's it's going down. It keeps going down, although the, the light at the end of the tunnel for Belarus will probably be the union between them and Russia, which gets stronger. Uh, although I should stress, well, I guess just mention Putin advised against shutting down the oil pipeline, and this is not to be confused with natural gas pipelines, this is an oil pipeline running through Belarus into Europe. Belarus has shut it down at a time when the Europeans are going through an energy crisis, so that's... Uh, how do I put this? It, it's really just them saying, fuck you. That, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the best way I can put this. The Belarusian government has taken all this flack and hate, and intolerance, and they've thrown it back in the face of the Europeans with a resounding fuck you. So now the Europeans are left out in the cold, figuratively and literally, with no oil. Well, not no oil, but a good chunk of the oil that came through that pipeline is now gone because the Belarusians aren't letting it through. Uh wow. What a what a way to respond. We'll see what the Europeans do about this. Um especially given that they're in an energy crisis right now. Wow, that's that's actually a pretty effective retaliation uh, now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Just wow. We'll keep our eyes on this uh continuing drama as we have done over the past year. Meanwhile, the Indian army has killed nine people in Kashmir who have been, who have been suspected of militant activity. Major flooding has happened in Canada's British Columbia province, and it has effectively cut it off from the rest of Canada. Release has had to be flown in by air. Um, it's pretty bad. I didn't get to see the casualty figures for that yet, so hopefully people are safe as safe as you can be in a flood, in a landslide, but we'll, we'll see. I talked about I talked about Anthony Blinken in Ethiopia already. Well, he's in Kenya. He was talking about Ethiopia. I talked about that already. Uh, meanwhile, the U.S. and China have agreed to an arms control talks. They've agreed to talks. So we'll see where those talks go. This is probably itself in response to China testing out a hypersonic missile, uh, which they did way back in the summer, I believe, but it's been brought to everyone's attention over the last month, so now the U.S. wants to have talks with China, and uh, apparently China's willing to come to the table. We'll see where this goes. I, uh, I don't know what else to say other than every time our foreign policy team of this administration has sat down with China, it usually ended uh, great for the Chinese. So we'll see where that goes. And apparently there is a summit meeting coming up between Biden and Putin as well. 
Uh, we'll, we'll see where all these things go. And we'll round out the rapid-fire news by saying that the violence in Nigeria's border region, uh, that is their north, what is it, northwest border, is getting progressively worse. Because now, I read, 43 have been killed in this border region. And that is way up from the numbers we've been reporting, where it's in, like, the lower double digits where you're talking 10, 15... We saw as high as like 20-something before. 43 people. It's getting worse. So that either means the militants in the Sahel are losing and they're getting uh, extremely aggressive now. Or it means that they're acting with impunity. Either way, Nigeria will have to respond at some point And they'll have to do it in a meaningful manner. Which may require a mobilization of the country's military at a time when they're divided internally because they have secessionist movements in their south. Nigeria is in a tough spot. A very tough spot. I don't know if they'll devolve into what's going on into Ethiopia. I don't know if they'll break down like that. But they're in a rough spot and they have a war that isn't even theirs being fought in their borderlands to the north secessionists in the south they're in a really really rough spot and that's the best way i can put it so we'll keep our eyes on it but that is nigeria and now that we've gotten through uh the meat a bit of a geopolitical speculation uh and the rapid fire we're gonna do some more geopolitical speculation and that is on africa so, you know, speculation time, because the news cycle has slowed down enough for me to do so, and I've been looking at my map, you know, like I usually do. I'm a map addict, what can I say? But, speculation time. Africa, as we know, is in crisis. Everywhere. Uh, from north to south, east to west, There, you name, there's a conflict somewhere, you can name it if you want to, but they're everywhere. And I believe this is making Africa vulnerable to outside predation. And by that I mean it's making Africa ripe for the scramble. What do I mean by that? Well, we've been talking a lot about African issues, not just in this episode, although we really have been doubled down on Africa this episode. But over the past couple months, uh, we've been talking about issues in Africa from the war in Tigray well it's not in Tigray anymore it's in the rest of Ethiopia the Ethiopian civil war we've been talking about conflict that's probably going to break out at some point between Egypt and Ethiopia we talked about political crisis in Sudan which is technically still ongoing although it seems to be on the right path now towards a resolution there's civil war in Libya yeah, although that also seems to be coming to a, a resolution, but we will have to see on that one because there are forces who have already conspired to undermine that peace uh, a year ago before the peace was even announced. So we'll have to see on that one. Technically, there's still war and there's foreign powers involved. Algeria and Morocco have completely broken off diplomatic ties. All right. And there's the potential for war between them oh likely over control of pipelines and natural gas there's the massive conflict in the sahel that keeps going and keeps taking lives namely in burkina faso and in nigeria who is really just eating that loss like a like a champ just I mean, what more can I say other than 43 deaths just last week, which is the highest I've seen in since covering the conflict that goes on there. There's various secession movements. Nigeria and Ethiopia are key examples. Um, although, I guess Morocco also qualifies for that list because West Sahara wants independence and no one wants to give it to them. I'm pretty sure Morocco certainly doesn't. There, various secession movements. You have uh, instability in Lithoso, way down in South Africa. You have ethnic tensions between the whites and blacks in South Africa. 
you have militant activity in the heart of Africa, in Congo, and in Mozambique. And in Mozambique's case, they brought in the Portuguese to help them fight back. You have a famine about to rip through Somalia. And there's lots and lots of problems. And those are just the ones I can name to you. Because those are the ones I've paid attention to. Africa is a big place. Oh, did we? Did I mention there's a genocide in Angola? Wow. Uh, there's lots and lots of crises, not just issues, crises going on in Africa, and there's still room for expansion. And it's very likely, looking at the contenders to expanding it, it's very likely that it's going to expand the number of crises that we're looking at. And I think that this instability is going to open the continent up to another era of foreign exploitation. I mean, just just look at who's involved now. I gave you the top five list of the, pre the foreign presences in Africa, the United States, China, France, Turkey, and Spain. The United States is intensifying its presence because it wants to compete with China over infrastructure uh, developments in the continent. So although that may be a positive one, we also have troops in a whole bunch of these countries. So that's, that's, well, foreign predation, technically speaking. Uh, the French military, we talked about them. They got away with killing three protesters in Burkina Faso. They've gotten away with it. They haven't been expelled. The government hasn't really condemned them. There's been no real punishment of them. They've just been allowed to continue on fighting. Foreign predation. Turkey and a number of other countries like Italy, the United States, and France, and Britain, to a lesser extent, were involved in the Libyan civil war. Turkey is still heavily involved. There's Chinese infrastructure projects across Africa, although largely concentrated in the continent's east. So from Congo, the, the big Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, from there, eastwards, that's China. That, that, that's just all China. Uh, from Sudan downwards, that's just all China. Uh, Mozambique has issues with militants, Islamic militants. They invite their former colonial master, Portugal, to come back and help them fight. Like, I I couldn't have seen... I, I couldn't make this up. <laughs> I mean, you can, but who could make it up the way that it has ended up? I mean, honestly. You'd think, oh, the British Empire had all these territories, so we're just going to unite the British Empire again. But instead, it's France as a resurgent power. You're talking about China as the new player on the block. You're talking about Turkey putting the Ottoman Empire back together. These are strange contenders that are overlapping in their interests in expanding their interests in Africa. There's the United States, a country that, I, as I've mentioned, has very, very, very few real interests in Africa. It's a, but it happens to have the largest presence in Africa simultaneously. It's very strange how this has all worked out. But looking at that, and looking at the crises that have opened up independent countries to foreign predation, I pose the question, will these crises, of which there are still more that we can see coming, let alone ones we can't see coming, Will the crises plaguing countries across Africa open it up to foreign predation? And I think it will. I, I really think it will. China is already heavily involved economically in East Africa. We talked about the French reinterfacing with their colonies. We talked about the pers the prospect of whenever Canada comes, not Canada, whenever Kanza comes around, South Africa might find itself in the crosshairs of this gangly empire that needs a focal point for it what will eventually be a pretty powerful naval force and merchant marine. 
so that they can interface with each other independently of other countries and other countries' lanes of trade. South Africa is perfectly located to neatly knit the empire back together. We talked about that. Um, it's very, very likely that with all these conflicts going on, all these wars and famine and disasters, a lot of them are also being brought apart by the lockdown measures that happened in other countries who Africa was dependent on for their economic success. I mean, there's a massive debt problem in Africa right now. It's, it's not as big as countries like, oh, I don't know, the United States or China or Britain or Germany, but it's there. And in relative terms, it can wipe away more of the progress that they have made than a crash that happens in the United States or China is going to do. It can hurt us, but we'll still be industrialized countries. They have a crash. It could wipe out a lot more of their progress than what a crash could do to us here. And that's and all this is to say nothing of Islamic radical groups that spawn in the Middle East and have injected themselves into Africa uh, across and to the point where there's fighting across the entire continent with these sorts of militants. The Sahel being infamous, the most infamous one, that's where the French are mostly involved, uh, and their countries as far away as Chad are fighting this, this battle. Then you have militants in Mozambique, which have opened the door for even tiny Portugal to step back into the ring. I see these instances, these locations where countries have stepped in, especially militarily, I see those as being opportunities for the expansion of influence. And we'll know definitively that the Chinese have colonized East Africa when they start sending in their troops. When they, because they're, they're taking the economic approach and the, they're sending in people, a lot of their own people to do some of these infrastructure projects and they need places to live and they need amenities and eventually they're going to need protection and that's going to require the Chinese military. Africa, I believe, already has its doors just busted open towards exploitation. So at this point, I believe that it's a matter of seeing how the exploitation goes down and what countries in Africa may be able to make the most of a dangerous situation. Because let's be honest, a lot of these countries are not going to be effective at fighting back against countries that have the strength to reach them. Um, Ethiopia might, if they can get their shit back together, but they're in a civil war. Nigeria has the population, but they have secessionist movements, they have a war in their north, and they might devolve into a civil war of their own. South Africa has racial tensions that can be exploited, that are technically already being exploited by the Russians, who are just importing the whites to farm their land in Russia. It's... These crises are already being taken advantage of in smaller ways. So what happens when, say, the era that we are in right now, where U.S. dominance is unquestioned, what happens when that era comes to an end and we return to the era of great power politics? And I mean the multipolar kind of great power politics, where you have an imperial center in China, Russia, France, Britain, America, Spain, Portugal, Turkey. What happens when we go back to that world and the various imperial centers start competing with each other and they're competing with each other over Africa? What happens to the African people? Well, they're just going to get annexed. They'll, I imagine there'll be great resistance as there was the first time, but let's be honest. How many of these African countries have the ability, like really have the ability, to fight back against outside predators? Especially countries that already have a presence on the continent, like Spain, like France, like the United States, like Turkey. China technically only has troops really in Djibouti, but could Djibouti fight back against those Chinese troops? 
maybe it's mountainous, but would they really? Or would the Chinese control the port? Well, they probably wouldn't control Djibouti. That's an international one. A whole bunch of countries have their navies there. But how many countries in Africa could defend themselves effectively against outsiders who have the ability to reach them militarily? I think the number is very small. And therein lies the danger and the opportunity. Because countries that do make it through will find themselves exploiting the same opportunities that the outside powers are. Ethiopia, if it gets its shit together, it could be a major power in East Africa. Nigeria has almost, has what, over 200 million people? They could be a major power in West Africa. If they could do it. If someone wins in the standoff between Morocco and Algeria, or if they just start expanding in opposite directions, they could become major powers as well. There are countries who can fight and can defend themselves, but they're all tied down by other issues. So we'll really just have to wait and see who is able to take advantage of the changing tide and who will be left behind who will build themselves up into something greater than they are, and who will find themselves scrambled in Africa. But that's my speculation on the future. And that is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world and Africa is changing, and we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hi Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, Servus.